City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. And that's what we're getting in this sort of city we have. But anyway, it's um, City Limits and it's uh, 9.03. It just ticked over to 9.03 on the clock in the 3CR number one studio. And uh, today we're looking, we looked at housing last week. We're going to look at housing in two ways again this week, aren't we, Zeb? Zeb yeah. here. I'm Kevin Healy. And, um, well, first up, we're going to talk about um, a wonderful documentary, a radio documentary that um, is coming on um, this station starting tomorrow, in fact, I think, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, so um, <laughs> Homeless in Hotels That's is right. the radio series, um, and we'll be talking to Kelly and Spike soon That's about right. that. Yes, Kelly Whitworth and Spike Beyond And uh, later in the program, we're going to be talking to. Uh, to, to another to another housing issue to a couple of academics relating to a matter of a, of a conference they're holding or a seminar or whatever they're holding to yeah. look at to look at all sorts of things to do with housing and living standards and all and things around our society which is coming up uh, some next month in fact that that's yeah. coming up yeah so that one's which, the dwelling justice forum dwelling justice with Libby Porter who's been on this program a few times and been on 3CR a number of her programs it's, yes yep. yes and uh, David Kelly so and David Kelly that's right uh, who I don't think we've talked to before no we haven't we are, we are, what, a, what a thrill for him he's first on city limits <laughs> you want a cup of tea I would love one. Oh, okay I'll pour you a cup of tea and we'll uh, there we are a cup of tea yeah and so we're going to go to those pretty quickly because with all those guests we're going to um, we haven't got much time to do our normal Raid, yeah. which means I can hear lots of breathes of sighs of relief out there. <laughs> Here we go. Um, all those sighs of relief. But I just thought I'd, I'd open up by pointing out um, that last week, I think, uh, even by its standards, the Herald Sun, I think they went six days in a row with headlines that totally attacked Dan Andrews as being to blame for every fault in the whole world. And, of course, what they call fault, we might consider to be the opposite, like they talk about our sad state of despair with Saturday's headline Dan's pandemic laws slammed for inflicting significant toll um, the day before masks face off and how people are you know how terrible it is that people are being forced to wear masks uh, at the same time of course as COVID is running riot but um, that doesn't seem to have worried them too much of the fact the fact that people are being Forced, well, they're not actually being forced anyway. The government has backed off that, which I think they shouldn't. I think, you know, but as we said last week, you should, we should wear masks at the moment with what's going on. But uh, yeah. the Herald Sun sees it as some sort of conspiracy that people are so, must be a communist conspiracy that you're forced to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. It's only two and a half years ago, of course, when you walk, if you walked into a bank with a mask, you'd get arrested. Now, now you're, you're supposed to have one. <laughs> um, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? On those things, though, on similar things, we, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we, we celebrated the fact that, that the people who were charged over a, um, an Indigenous march on April, I think it was one of the January 26 marches, who were, who were arrested uh, for breaking lockdown rules or, 
a, a couple of years ago, had be, they were told they wouldn't be charged, but then very quickly they said, no, that was a mistake. They still, so those charges are still going ahead for those people. But in the last week, um, a well-known anti, anti-lockdown crusader, Monica, Monica Smith, um, has had her charges withdrawn and the public prosecutor said, the Department of Public Prosecutions had decided it was no longer in the public interest to prosecute the incitement day charges due to the time she went, etc. Um, and so, uh, and she even failed to, bail, to, to obey her bail conditions, but nonetheless they've now dropped all charges. So someone who actually went out and deliberately opposed the lockdown rules has now had her charges withdrawn, but people who went on a on a protest on a, on on invasion day, I think it was an invasion day one, um, and arrested because they were out protesting when they should have been locked down apparently, or breaking the lockdown rules, are still facing charges. So it's interesting, mm. isn't it? Yes, where, very much. Where the priorities lie in this society. Yeah, there's also um, I just heard a news item before coming here um, from the Guardian that was about COVID fines that were issued. Um, like a couple of years ago now, um, or maybe even last year as well, during the lockdowns, and um, like most of them are like for a thousand dollars, but they're now like sort of saying that um, because all of the COVID restrictions um, kept on like changing basically every day during lockdown, a lot of the fines just aren't fair at all um and you know people got fined for like sitting on a park bench because they were meant to be exercising and they just like sat down for a minute and it happened that like police were you know um kind of parading in that that case the case rests so to speak yeah um and (laughs) some of the most like highest fines per capita are in um small towns and like really vulnerable communities like, um, you know, uh, like rural towns with predominantly First Nations populations and things like that. So, yeah, there's some difficult things going on there. Well, you wouldn't want to lift the fines on those people, though. I mean, that's that's terrible. Um, Yeah, and and of course, um, today the government's bringing in this, um, it's 43 percent reduction uh, clause at the same time as it's saying though it, um, in fact our Prime Minister has said overnight that it would be too damaging to the economy not to not to keep approving coal and gas so you're going to ask talk about reducing emissions while increasing coal and gas which seems to be a pretty interesting a pretty interesting problem for them to, to solve but um, just in the last couple of days uh, it's been it's come out that the the Climate analysts in the mob called Climate Analytics, they're called. Hi, Spike. Just walked into the studio. Um, have, have said that the the, coal, the goal they're passing today in Parliament, even without the increased coal and gas, won't go near our Paris Agreement, and in fact will mean a, an increase over two percent, which uh, two degrees, which of course everyone knows would be an absolute and will be an absolute disaster. At the same time, two weeks ago, remember Zeb, we talked, we interviewed. Uh, the the campaigner at Foe on gas are uh, talking about the need to obviously stop gas and how Victoria at least has a had a moratorium and is not it's 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 wavering a little but Victoria is pretty good on not not um, 
extracting its gas. But Woodside Petroleum, which after the same week has announced record profits, by the way, uh, has said the Victorian government should um, definitely develop its own resources and, in fact, urge them to support the LNG import terminal at Geelong, which will cause enormous damage to the environment down there. So everything's going so well in that area, isn't it? Brilliantly, um, brilliantly. It is. Look, now, it's now nine, yeah. ten year. We'll, we'll move on to our guests, I reckon. Yeah, um, we'll just yeah. do a short break and make sure everyone's set up. But we'll have a short break first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to to me and this community here, we've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Okay, and back on city limits, and we've got um, we've got Spike um, um, Chapel Caperoni, Chapeloni, yeah, yeah. C H I should be Cap, shouldn't it? C H I A. So in the Italian, there's no K in the Roman alphabet. No, but C H I in Italian usually is pronounced Key. Yes, correct. Yeah, okay. Keep on there, and we've also got. Kelly Whitworth in the next studio. We've sort of keep because of COVID. We're uh, despite what the Herald Sun says about masks and things, we are being careful, <laughs> and um, therefore Kelly's in the next studio. But we're all going to have a chat. And um, Spike, would one of you start telling us um, tomorrow? Isn't it this documentary? And it's, yes, it's, it's it's a radio documentary. You got a grant, did you not, to kick it off? Yes, we we applied. So um, the Regina Brindle Foundation is a foundation that was established. Um, I think it's with Shark Kelly or Apsu, one yeah, of those peer the self help addiction yeah. resource centre. And they make uh, they've made this money available for peer people with a lived experience uh, to develop stories um, about people having a lived experience. So it's that sort of grassroots um, people, I guess giving people an opportunity to tell their stories about what it's like um, yeah, like to live in, in a state mm. where, or a country where there's prohibition um, where there's no uh, human rights based housing policy where the government can take away your rights to move overnight when, you know, in 2017 they tried to do that, make it illegal to be asleep on, on the mm. footpath and uh, I mean, uh, the, the the accommodation was important for people um, during you know there's a pandemic on, but there's very little discussion about how it happened, and where these people were going, and how much input they had into where you know into the this whole plan. Yeah, look, the ge- the general feeling I think in the community was it wasn't it great people who were homeless were being getting a roof over their heads, isn't this good? Now your documentary challenges some of that, does it not? Well, it's really, it's, I think, um, yes. Uh, you'll hear from the um, people's responses that they were, you know, like, it, yeah, it wasn't a holiday. Um, it, was a really, it was really difficult to um, be, 
to have this accommodation be encouraged into accommodation, I guess, um, and have no control over where you're going. You might you might be in the same building to someone you owed money to. Like, do you know what I mean? Like we, um, and they're not they weren't homes. Mm. Um, and I think if it was difficult for people that have their own living room, you know, we we weren't all in this together. Some people were doing it a lot tougher and. Um, if, if, yeah, if we thought it was hard f- for the people that are housed, imagine what it was like, because everyone's support services completely melted away. So if people were seeing their counsellors or podiatrists, physios, that all went because of, it all because of COVID and, and the lockdown. So it was really difficult um, for people having a lived experience of homelessness, and um, you know the added thing the, uh, of. Living with, uh, in some cases, addiction also. Mm. like Well, also yeah. the location of these places, did it mean that people were often removed from where they'd been existing homeless for some time? Was that Correct. a problem? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Some people were moved to Dandenong, where all the services, their whole, you know, their yeah. thing, their routine is the CBD. Mm. For, for a lot of people, um, especially people that sleep, you know, what I term rough sleepers are people that are sleeping in tents or squats or improvised dwellings. Um, you know, sometimes they may couch surf occasionally or stay in a shelter, you know, like in one of the student hostels. But, you know, 40, 50% of their time is, you know, street-based. Mm. Uh, it's a three-part documentary, isn't it? And it's watched tomorrow. What time is tomorrow? 12 o'clock. Kelly, do you um, want to fill us in before? Yeah, it's a three-part. Um, uh, premieres um, tomorrow, 12 p.m. to 1 p.m., and um, next Thursday and then the Thursday after. And if people uh, miss the radio broadcast, they'll be able to um, listen back online and we'll give out those um, details um, after the first um, episode broadcast tomorrow. All right. And how did you go about doing it? What was the process and so what are we going to be listening to? Uh, Well... um, yeah, um, we relied on our networks really um, to get our peers and because, you know, we've already got some runs on the board in this area. We're kind of a known quantity to people um, having, you know, uh, co-produced the Ruminations Homelessness Program for a, quite a number of years here on 3CR and we, um, you know, co-founded the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria back in 2014. So... Um, yeah, we're a bit of a known quantity, and so there's some trust there within our networks. That, um, we were able to get, obviously, people. We weren't able to get as many people as we wanted with the time that we had, um, and uh, that was very difficult last year through um, winter with lockdowns, you know, happening. It um, disrupted the flow of things, um, and, yeah, the very long process of transcribing all those interviews and coming up with our stories, how are we going to tell these stories, you know, um, yeah, and um, that took some time. We had our own uh, housing and substance use challenges throughout that time as well. You know, our personal lives yeah. impacted. Um, and now we're coming up to the, you know, the pointy end. <laughs> it's finally going to be broadcast tomorrow after 18 months and we really can't wait for people to um, yeah, hear yeah. these voices in, and, and their stories because it's been our baby for a long time and we can't wait for <laughs> kind of birth it into the world now and let other people um, hear their stories and they're really going to fall in love um, with these people who have a lot of heart yeah. and um, 
a lot of humanity. And I think the series really does humanise um, homelessness in the pandemic. And people f- did find it really rough. Um, everybody was just thrown together yeah. in those hotels with little services or, or varied what kind of mm. services people could get. And um, they found it really hard. And um, a lot of them were just thrown back on the streets. You know, they didn't get housing after it. So, you know, we ask listeners to really reflect on life, you know, before, during and after a pandemic, you know, what happens to people? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, congratulations on, on, on that first Kelly's bike. Like, that's a long gestation period. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you're going to be, like, focusing on, I guess, a lot of personal testimonies. Um, have you found, like, what have been the overarching kind of similarities um, between people's experiences um, well, we really focused on alcohol and other drug um, use and um, how people manage their AOD and their mental health. And so we've um, structured the three episodes around different themes. The first episode, we really go into the world of the hotel um, accommodation, the day-to-day life for people. What was the social scene like? How did people manage their substance use? How did they manage their well-being? Um, we meet a couple of workers who can provide some larger context. And in the second episode, we meet some more peers and some support workers. And um, that episode focuses on services. How did people access services? What opportunities did, did they have that they might not have had previously? Or what difficulties did they come up against? And in the third episode... We look at the law. How did the law impact um, the homeless community when it pretty much, as Spike was saying, became illegal to be on the street? And then we finish up with both our peers and our workers reflecting on the hotel accommodation scheme. What were the things that could have been done better? Where did it fall down? And going forward, you know, what do we do now? Mm. And as for common themes, I think, yeah, people did feel um, unsupported, um, Seb, you know. Um, It was very chaotic in the hotels um as i said everyone was just thrown together with little support and um and then the people that didn't get housing out of it they felt really let down it was very very hard for them very emotional journey not knowing how long they were going to be able to stay in the hotels because the funding was only um like two weeks at a time so it was very tenuous they were very anxious and um yeah, it wasn't um, necessarily a great experience for everybody. Can, can I just mm. add, like, what, what one of the things, one of the similarities I heard in um, one of the themes was how people who are having a lived experience, how they feel they're perceived by the, by the, by the, I guess the world, um, and and how um, they have made they are made to feel like, um, what's the best way to put this, like. Sort of undeserving, I guess. Um, like, yeah, I think there's a real misunderstanding about who homeless people are. The undeserving poor. Yeah, um, and and, yeah. Um, and and just the lack of a plan for them. You know, what what's going to happen to me? Suddenly, you've taken away my rights to move, but there's no, you don't have a housing policy. You know, yeah. so the, the government that can take away your rights to move around doesn't think about providing, doesn't have a long term plan, doesn't have public housing. No. And, you know, that was really, I, I feel, uh, yeah, people were disheartened. Well, Kelly mentioned going forward, and of course, at the moment, uh, COVID is really running as rampant as it ever has. 
Uh, what's happening with homeless people at the moment? We know last week they were, the cops came and took a lot of the possessions off people. Um, that are, they, are, they, are they being left on the streets? Look, it's really up to the so the way things are, the way things are for people that are homeless. It's like it's really up, you know. Like there's outreach teams that that sort of visit that visit um, parts of the, you know they do the rounds around the CBD because that's where that's where I'm sort of I'm aware of. Um, it's there's it it's really really so rooming houses are the only options for people when you go to a, what they call a housing entry point and so each area you know you're supposed to there's there's a housing entry point that you, that you uh you get in touch with if you want housing and um it's either crisis or com um in you know sort of yeah basically rooming houses and for anyone like for anyone that's lived in a rooming house um a lot of people do choose the freedom and the in a lot in a lot of instances the security of knowing the people around you that's that's a really important thing um you know your neighborhood but you being in a rooming house um you don't have any control about who's coming in or out and mm. a lot of people uh, choose to sleep rough or squat well or, we we talked last week about the the crisis accommodation situation at the Coburg Motor Inn for instance and um that that's usually for people coming out of jail but also there's been lots of stories about rooming houses boarding houses being sold off and conditions there being pretty bad anyway. I mean, yeah. um, surely there needs to be, as you say, a, a solution in public housing for the whole problem. Yeah, well, well, that's as someone that's been homeless and works in homelessness now, I, yeah, I, I that's the only answer. As things stand, you know, like I, I saw something by someone that said there was a, like a million empty properties in Australia or something like that, some crazy amount of properties. On the, on the last census night, there were 300,000 vacant dwellings in Victoria. Okay. So, so this, the, what I heard was a million Australia-wide. Yeah. So, 300, so those, those properties, because of the way capitalism set up, they're not available to people that, that, that are homeless. No. You know, they're not on the, the Victorian Housing Register. You, you can't get access to those properties. Our that the housing crisis is is it's uh, um, it, it's it's been created, you know. Like you you if when people buy four or five properties and negative gear and all this sort of stuff, people that are homeless don't get access to those properties. So they're fundamentally locked out of all the all this. Pro- so unless you identify a house for yourself and start squatting it, um, the only houses the properties are available to someone that homeless is through an application for public housing on the public housing register that can you can wait up to five years because of the lack of public housing. And there's no shortage of funding. I mean, last Saturday going at Vic Market, I, there were two homeless people on the street near Vic Market I, I saw as I walked past. And yet later waiting for the tram, I sat and counted on these high-rise buildings, 12 cranes across the skyline, billions and billions of dollars going into real estate. While down below, there's people who can't find a roof. Yeah, like, I mean, people can see, you know, in at Docklands apparently there's empty, there's empty like, you know, those skyscraper things are everywhere, and like, yeah, unless you have, it's all built around cash. I mean, as we, you know, capitalism, it's it's brutal on vulnerable communities. It, it really is. It locks them out of what is a human right. Mm. That way, the way things stand. Um, I was just thinking, like, back to the the hotel situation, how much information is out there about, like, how 
particular hotels were picked out um, for the program and like how people were were told that they um, were like would be able to live here or like were they made to like that sort of thing. So who should answer? Oh, you can answer um, that. I, I, so how it, uh, hotels chosen? So yeah. in in one of the I can't remember which episode, but um, one of our uh, one of the workers it was uh, uh, managed the north and western response to the uh, pandemic, and basically workers were ringing hotels, basically working like tour tourist and asking them if they if they would accept homeless people in their building. That's it was left. That's how that's how it was managed, and they were getting funding in dribs and drabs. Who were the people ringing? The work, workers that work for Northwestern Homelessness for, right. for the, I guess the entry point. Yeah, yeah. So the government, are they government employees or are they private? Not pro- well, they're, I guess they're a not for profit. They're a not for profit. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. a cor- some sort of corporate thing, I guess. Like yeah. the private sector, it was it was privatized. All the private charities had to organise all this, ringing furiously around like travel agents calling hotels to yeah, accommodate people for two weeks at a time. God. That took yeah. up a lot of their work. Yeah. What was the second part of your question, sorry? Oh, yeah. So how did people, like, how were people told, okay, this is happening, like, um, get your things and move to a hotel? Like- Can I just say that's a, a really awesome question because that's one of the main reasons we are, well, apart from just not uh, homeless people not being visible, and it's not just visibility because – you know, someone could walk up to a homeless person with a microphone anytime and speak to them, but actually create a safe space where they can discuss their shit, their stuff. Um, they they found out through outreach teams. You know, when they were doing their rounds, you know, they could, and or they found out through a friend. You know, there was no announcement, there was no publication, there was, which means, I guess, in a lot of instances, you don't have time to plan. You know, it, homeless people need to plan their next their, their 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 next week or their next month as well, just like we all do. You know, they have the same needs, you know, and desires, ambitions. You know, like they're just people. Um, and so they were finding out through face to face or friends. Yeah. Mm. And at the moment, the federal government, its main housing policy is to uh, give people some get some sort of money to to actually buy their own home which does which means that if you're homeless affordable housing whatever that means if you're homeless means absolutely nothing as far as i can make out um but also their other point is they do want to put money into to social housing as they call it but that's going to involve again the private sector so um we're really seeing no policies that run to genuine public housing that's and and for you know Someone was saying that one of the hate. I was. I've heard a conversation where um, a homeless person that that did get housing through um, their hotel accommodation. So there was a thing called house to home, hotels there, to uh, home. Sorry, hotel time. The H two H. And some people were, did were actually accommodated in an apartment, and they were sort of, I guess, othered in their building because they. They were, they were too late in putting out their bins. So when you have a situation where people from vulnerable communities are placed in, so when they spot buy or spot lease a couple of apartments into the next development, people are put into uh, communities they know, again where they don't have anything in common with the people around mm. them, and because of their prevailing view about who homeless people are and just this whole convention of 
you know, like, you know, the, the, you know, like the bins and all this sort of stuff, which is really like, you know, you'd think is crazy, um, made life really difficult for them because it was a private building that they spot bought or spot leased an apartment in. And so it made things really difficult for that person. And we're going to be told tomorrow by the treasurer and we're being told internationally that things are going to get worse financially. So one can only expect situation to worsen and not get better. So we're going to need more and more answers to the problem rather than, um, than just drag on, I guess. I think, oh uh, yeah, I th- yeah. The only way, as th- as I said earlier, as things stand, there needs to be a commitment to build properties and really like housing as a human right needs to be a thing and not just an idea like a a policy type thing that people, you know, want to champion because you know like the people that are having a um, a lived experience of homelessness and uh, look the, in, the drug overdose awareness days in a couple of. Uh, 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 in a week or so in Homelessness Week, those sort of things, the impact of prohibition that has, a, a, the impact of prohibition and the lack of um, public housing has on people that are doing it really hard, um, it's it's incredible. The, the, the private market, the private housing market is vicious on people that are struggling. Mm. We, might really, even, we, really we might see some of the big CEOs of the big companies in their state-of-the-art sleeping bags on the MCG or something, doing their bit for homelessness. I shouldn't laugh. It's just, yeah, that's out of control. Yeah, I don't know. You know, like, they haven't got security guards and police officers, you know, kicking them when they walk past. You know, like, people get spat on. There's all sorts of crap happens. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we're going to have to go to our next guest, but uh, Kelly, can you just uh, give us what we haven't said so far, what extra to uh, add to what's going on tomorrow in the next two weeks? Oh, nothing more to add, Kevin, just to, um, yeah, reiterate, yeah, it's being uh, broadcast tomorrow, um, 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. and the following two Thursdays, and it will be available um, online after that. And we really encourage people to have a listen and, um, you know, reflect, as I said, on life, you know, from the footpath before, during and after a pandemic and, um yeah, people can make up their own mind about what they think about it. But um, yeah. It's yeah. a lot of work. How long did it take you to put the whole thing together? Oh, it's been an 18-month project. Yeah, good. Well done, both of you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Yeah. Okay, we look forward to hearing it. Thank you. Okay, thanks, guys. Okay, thanks, Spike and Kelly, uh, Kelly and Spike, for coming in. And, uh, and we look forward, don't forget, tomorrow at 12 and the next two Thursdays after that at 12 o'clock. It sounds like a wonderful program. Yep. Okay, thanks We'll go a lot. to another short break yeah. and then um, I think our next guests are already getting set up. Tú nos dices que debemos sentarnos, pero las ideas solo pueden levantarnos, caminar, recorrer, no rendirse ni retroceder, ver, aprender como esponja, absorber. Nadie sobre todos, faltan todos, suman todos para todos, todo para nosotros. Se caiga el imperio, lo gritamos algo, no queda más remedio. Esto no es utopía, es alegre rebeldía del baile de los que sobran de la danza de mi mía. Levantarnos para decir ya vas, ni África ni América Latina se suba. Un barro con casco con lápiz a patear el fiasco, provocar un social terremoto en este charco.
pasan ahí afuera Yankee de América Latina Franceses, ingleses y holandeses Yo te quiero libre So that was Somosur featuring Shadia Mansu and Anna Tiju. And we should have David, Kelly and Libby Porter on the line now. How are you guys going? Hi, Seven. Hi. Yay, it all worked. Lovely. Um, So they're here to talk about the Dwelling Justice Forum, which is happening next month. Um, But first of all, do you want to just introduce yourselves a little bit um, and, you know, your backgrounds, maybe starting with Libby? Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Libby, uh, Libby Porter. I'm an educator and researcher uh, living on stolen Wurundjeri land and uh, pay respects. Um, I work at RMIT University in the Centre for Urban Research, and my work is really around the relationship between uh, urbanisation, urban processes, housing, land justice, uh, dispossession, questions like that. And I'm David Kelly. I work very closely with Libby Porter here on Stone Warrandry land. Um, and I look at all of those things, plus with a specific focus on public housing and homelessness and crisis accommodation. Great. And so this forum, can you tell us basically like the main themes that you'll be addressing um, and why you've organised it? For sure. So the main themes we're addressing are really the relationship or the intersection between uh, housing justice questions with sovereignty, land justice questions, and uh, incarceration or abolition movements. Because what we're increasingly 
thinking about and, and I guess observing um, as, as researchers but also as activists um, in this space is um, that we need to draw better connections perhaps between, particularly between uh, housing movements with, with those other uh, related kinds of movements and, and related uh, campaigns. It's uh, as a person who's always been interested in, and um, uh, passionate, I suppose, and, and wanting to contribute on questions of what dispossession means in a much wider sense and how someone like me, who's you know uh, a not Indigenous person uh, living on stolen land and benefiting from dispossession and genocide, w- what does that mean for my accountability and, and responsibility in the work? Um, when we're working in um, in sort of housing campaigns, one of the things I've I've often observed is how uh, frequently I you know come on air at three CR for example and talk about the importance of things like public land or public housing. And I know that um, the community here and the and the listeners as well are um, are passionate about those things and are concerned about you know the loss of public housing, the privatisation of public land, all of those all of those aspects that we often talk about. Um, but but so frequently I kind of catch myself in my own mind thinking about what does it mean to say that on stolen land? How can we change our our language, our campaign strategies um, to more properly come into a better relationship with um, Indigenous sovereignty uh, and, and what does that kind of look like in, in reality? So the, the Forum for Dwelling Justice is, is really trying to energise that intersection. It's trying to bring conversation, bring people together around what that might look like. And so we've tried to curate uh, a set of people that can uh, help uh, collectively help us all think through uh, those, those relationships. I've got to say, injustice and dwelling seem to come together in the recent exposés about things like the Coburg Motor Inn, where you know, crisis accommodation is obviously quite, quite dreadful conditions. Uh, that, that's one example, I would think, of, uh, of what shouldn't happen. Yeah, totally. Um, and there are multiple intersections with Coburg Motor Inn as well when we're talking about dwelling, because a lot of the single men who find themselves in the Coburg Motor Inn come from the most recent form of accommodation is prison. Mm. Um, and so really what we're talking about here is, um, is a state that funds dwelling a lot, but it funds it in the wrong way. It funds prisons and ex- prison expansions and that sort of thing. And it really just increases the dwelling precarity that we're seeing. So we're trying to, I, we're trying to bring together a lot of different threads here, but at the same time, it will strengthen a broader dwelling justice movement because it's not just about public housing; it's also about these forms of really intense precarity that happen at places like the Mot- uh, Coburg Motor Inn, but also in in prisons and in private rental as well. Right, and so what sort of voices are you going to have at the forum? Um, who are the speakers, and and what are they going to be focusing on? Yeah, um, so we're going to have some a lot of campaigners, basically, people who are rooted in the movements that they're talking about. So um, we have um, an opening keynote by Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's going to really foreground and set up sovereignty as fact for the rest of the event so that we carry that through as a fact, not as something that we just kind of compartmentalize or acknowledge on a... In a, in a very performative way, but something that each of the panels then speak to. So the panels are populated by a lot of people who work within these campaigns for um, 
an end to the prison industrial complex, um, an end to to incarceration. Um, and so the second panel is uh, chaired by Natalie Ironfield, who works in this um, prison abolitionist movement, is going to chair a panel with people like Whit Gorey, um, Deb Kilroy. Um, we also have others, such as um, they're all starting to escape. <laughs> Rouge Armory, um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> pardon me, and, and, a, and a third panel uh, looking at the intersection uh, particularly of housing and housing justice movements um, and, and spanning out a little bit more um, broadly. So uh, we've got a couple of international people joining that panel, uh, including Tina Grandinetti, who set up or was involved in the tenants movement um, in Honolulu, looking at the relationship between um, Kanaka Maoli uh, houseless encampments and uh, the fights for kind of housing and land justice and the way they uh, coalesce um, in, in that space. Uh, so uh, so Tina, alongside uh, um, uh, all, all the names have dropped out of my head, alongside Nat Osborne from uh, from Mianjin, uh, speaking on, on those intersections from that context um, and, and a bunch of others besides. Yeah, and it's going to be um, at, at the end of the, the event we're going to have two film screenings. One is a sneak peek of the Benigo Street documentary by Jazz, who is a friend of the show. Um, and then we're going to have a full-length premiere of a doco called Things Will Be Different, which is tracking the displacement of two households from the Walker Street and Northcote Estate um, during its demolition under the Public Housing Renewal Program. So we have a kind of mixed bag of a lot of different things happening, but they all kind of speak to the intersections of this dwelling justice thing. We commented on this show last week that <coughs> excuse me, that Chris Maxwell, the retiring um, head of the Court of Appeal, had dismissed an appeal against severity upset and saying he had no choice but in fact it was total injustice and he really got stuck into the government for the minimum penalties which are part of the problem we're seeing in so many people in prison. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I don't know much about that specific um, event but uh, I think you know looking at the ways in which uh, policing systems, the, the actual structures of the criminal justice system and the wider... Um, structures and processes I suppose of like things like housing markets um, actually interrelate because they do very deeply and yet we don't bring probably enough attention um, we perhaps particularly in the, the sort of housing and urban research field I don't think we in our community bring enough attention to that intersection we don't notice that there's more money being spent for example more public investment in prison systems than there are in housing systems. For example, we're not we're not um, openly and uh, and explicitly examining um, empirically that relationship. Um, so, so a lot of the work of the that we're trying to achieve in the forum and and the work that we hope will unfold from it uh, is bringing, I guess, greater accountability um, into those kinds of conversations so that we can draw out exactly those threads that you that you mentioned, Kevin. Um, this is a sort of slightly left of centre question, but I'm just interested in your own um, like personal experiences of being activist scholars um, and what it's like being um, an activist in the context of like a university institution and and um, what you like you know does that um, what does that mean for like radical action and like connecting with other campaigns. 
It's a great question. <laughs> uh, one we one I get asked a, a, a little bit. Um, I it, it's an uncomfortable position, um, and and that's a good thing because I think being uncomfortable is a is a useful <laughs> tool. Uh, I often say to my, say to myself and others uh, whenever I'm feeling too comfortable, that means something's going wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm probably making a mistake somewhere. Um, so, so I think using that discomfort is, is a useful thing. Um, I mean, you know, co- universities are big colonial institutions. Um, they are also big neoliberal institutions. They don't take kindly, particularly, to this kind of work. Um, they certainly don't count it, um, generally speaking. Um, but sometimes you can find little corners uh, in institutions, and, and I'd argue that our uh, centre that we belong to and our colleagues um, are very much that kind of corner uh, of, a, of a big colonial institution that uh, where this kind of work can, can get done, uh, or at least we as practitioners of it, David and I, can, can do this kind of work um, with a degree of of intellectual freedom and um, and bringing some of the resources of the university as best we can to bear on that, to support that kind of work, I think is, is really part of our role um, in, in a university setting. Yeah, and also there's a bit, a bit of a myth out there that activists don't need research evidence, <laughs> and they do, and we do. Um, so what we're doing, one of our jobs as activist scholars is to provide research evidence for you know, protest movements and campaigns and that sort of stuff because it is valuable. It is valuable to turn and say, hey, look, like this is an issue. It's a quantifiable empirical issue that we can actually say with certainty is a problem and is doing harm. So I think part of our role here is to go to people like Renters and Housing Union, say Public Housing Collective, Homes Not Prisons, and say, hey, what sort of research evidence would help you in your activist activities Mm -hmm. Um, and being able to provide that. So that's kind of one of the unique things that we're able to do, which I think is a bit unique. Well, the previous government, I think, saw research as decidedly dangerous, in fact. But mm. um, a recent article in The Age pointed out that at the um, Ascot Vale uh, public housing, where there's, one again, the so-called renewal program going on, that, in fact, just to... To fix these places up would cost 182 grand per apartment, but building new ones is costing 595. So even where they are spending money, they could be spending a lot less and getting better results. I would have thought. Yeah, and shout out to our friends at Office who did that feasibility study, who basically proved that the government are wasting money. What we can, for all the benchmarks that they set in terms of sustainability and all that sort of stuff we can meet those at a much lower cost without displacing communities. Um, And these are communities who have lived there for decades. So we know we can do this at a cheaper rate. And the question really is, why are the economic rationalists in government not not actually foregrounding economic rationalism when it comes to this? And Mm -hmm. the reason is because this is really, um, again, harking back to the public... Um, idea and with the problematics of using the word public, but what we're seeing is privatization of public resources, um, of, of land and that sort of stuff. So that's the government's motivation is to get this off the books so that it's no longer risk, so that it's no longer depreciating, depreciating asset for them. There's no liability. Um, but, you know, it's not about economic, economic rationalism and it's not about what's in the best interest of the community who already live there. Mm-hmm. And, li- and line that one up, um, uh, Kevin, against yesterday's discussion um, in some of the, the broadsheets about um, land banking. 
and and the mm-hmm. and the way in which that operates. So I think you know beginning to see the connections between these things. These, these are all these are small communities of practice, if you like, um, elite communities of practice that have fingers in so many pies that most of us can't see. Um, and so beginning to sort of shine lights on on those connections and really see them for what they are, so that we can really understand what we're being sold, which is really a, 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 a lemon um, in relation to things like the public housing renewal program and, and other kinds of, you know, the big housing build and, and so on. Um, and they're not just, you know, because the, the numbers don't stack up and we could do it much more cheaply, but there's much more at stake here. Um, and we're trying to really expand that conversation to look at w- what is the much more at stake here um, that's what yeah. we're trying to do. And ironically, of course, the same people who are land banking are the ones calling out saying we need more supply. Of course. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and you can see how those two things feed each other, right? Yeah. But <laughs> it, also, it also comes, of course, in terms of housing to the fact that as we, as we grow, as we have urban sprawl, we're, we're destroying environments as well. That's, that's a further problem, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, but also the supply thing is, is just a complete mythos. Like there's mm. more vacant homes in Australia than there are people who need them. There's, we don't have a supply issue. We have a utilisation issue and a, and a, and a, uh, a problem. We have incentive. a market. That's yeah. what we have. Mm. <laughs> That's the problem. Um, the problem is we have a market in housing rather than a, rather than a, a principle of, uh, you know, if you like, housing as a human right to, to use that kind of framework. Um, yes. Yeah. What would you want to come at the end of this um, this forum you're holding? What do you want to see come out of it? Mm. We we don't want to be too prescriptive about what people do afterwards because really we think that the people who we've been able to bring together are clever people who have lots of energy, maybe not as much capacity, but um, they we're we're confident that you know something organic will happen between the connections that are made, but. Really what we want is for the housing justice movement to come closer to the messages that are coming out of the sovereignty movement, the messages that are coming out of the abolitionist movement, so that we can actually come together as a more coordinated political class that is seeking dwelling justice, which is a more expansive term. It's not just about houses. It's about the forms of dwelling that take place in a settler colony and being able to resist them. So we're hoping, you know, to galvanize a bit more of a, a more expansive movement under a broader moniker. But we also have resources at our disposal being researchers and um, in a big institution where we can actually maintain a network, where we can keep these people in conversation with each other. Um, and so that's kind of one of the baseline things that we want to get out of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, governments, if you're going to get more public housing, genuine public housing, we need governments to be on board, obviously, and the Victorian government is still on the renewal program, and I noticed the new federal minister talking about the so the 20,000 social houses and affordable homes they're going to build talks about working with the community housing providers, so they too are not talking about genuine public housing at this stage. So how do we get governments to start talking about genuine public housing? Mm, it's a great question and one, as you know, we've grappled with for a long time. Um, I think part of, for, for me partic- in particular, th- this, um, this forum for dwelling justice is, is also a bit of a way to create a different kind of conversation um, because if we spend all our energy trying to convince governments um, what they should or shouldn't be doing, uh, we might have spent 
too much energy uh, that we need to actually galvanise these these wider kinds of connections, as, as Dave was just speaking about before. Um, and so we're, we've, we've really noticed that, uh, or I've really noticed that in my own work, uh, how much that kind of conversation can soak up. You know, how do you speak to try and convince the minister that this is a better way? Or how, what form of evidence can you present to a policymaker that can sort of turn their head a little and make them think differently about something? And I have really been struck by um, how utilitarian, actually, that idea is, that, that, that even, you know, pre- we know that presenting evidence to politicians or policymakers... Uh, bears no relationship to the to the outcome of a policy. Um, we, we can see that in every single policy field. Let's look at climate change. Um, you know, we've got an abundance of, of evidence and, and, and so little action uh, and so little of the right kinds of action um, according to the to the evidence. So so in, in part I think this this forum is really about um, changing the nature of our conversation and that our conversation might need to also be with each other not only to government and not only to policymakers and that we need to build movements um, rather than create policy mechanisms um, in and of themselves, which is, which is mm. not to say that that's not important. Um, mm. I'm not d- diminishing what you're, what you're saying. But we're also um, trying to resist the urge to be redistributive about this because that's a very old kind of Keynesian idea about how politics works like we're not going to see redistribution of public resources to those who need it most to people on the victorian housing register waiting for public housing it's it's not going to happen especially when we've seen recently a new minister come on board who thinks that public house the big public housing bill that happened in you know 50s and 60s was a mistake like has said that on the record that that was a massive mistake we will not make this mistake again so we're getting worse when it comes to providing genuine public housing. We are moving to an increasingly more neoliberal model of not-for-profit private sector um, delivery of social housing, which doesn't see any uplift in the actual amounts of dwellings that we need. So really, we can't appeal and continue to appeal for a redistributive policy to a state that continues to enact forms of violence around dwelling. So we're trying to work now outside of that framework and not get bogged down into appealing to a state that we don't see as benevolent. Or indeed legitimate, hence the framing of and, and foregrounding of sovereignty. Um, so, yeah, that is an important point. Yeah, very important. In fact, look, we're going to have to wind up, but just give us details so people can know what's going on. Yep, sure. So the event is taking place on the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne CBD. Um, so that's on Swanson Street, and it's going to be from 1 p.m. till about 7 p.m. Um, with a with a decent break in between, um, in the middle of the event. So um, yeah, if you want to go to the uh, event webpage, it's uh, cur c u r dot org dot au <laughs> slash events. Yeah, just repeat that again. People get a pen in their hand or something. So www dot c u r dot org dot au slash events right wonderful well thank you both for coming on the show thanks so much for having us us. okay that was libby porter and david kelly um talking about what sounds like it well we've done we've done two things today we've got three weeks now of this wonderful radio documentary and then we follow up in august with that so it's uh, (laughs) things are happening let's hope out of all of it uh we get some results (laughs)
Righto. And well, our next week, is, are we back to transport? Transport next yes. week. Transport, transport next, next week. week. And the week after is energy. And we're going to be repeating a couple of things. We're going to, uh, young Vanessa, the wonderful um, speaker, wonderful young woman from Africa on climate change and uh, George Monbiot, we're going to have them on um, the week after. Lovely. All right. Let's finish yeah. off with little CSA and um, a Mojo Juju song. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio. Like a stepping stone I hope that you know They come and they go Yes, they come and they go Yes, they come and they go You're in such a hurry To get where you're going You don't really mind Where you step on the climb It's such a long way When you fall from the top, top, top And how it hurts When you finally drop I'll be here when the crisis is show when you start seeing clear when you finally know that every hand that you're shaking, all the deals that you make, every smile that you're faking, your polite conversations, every friend that you're treated like a stepping stone. I hope that you know they come and they go, yes, they come and they go, yes, they come and they Things were in the past I always assumed that we built things to last But bridges can burn and turn into ash You never look back, you never look back Now who pick you up when you're out on your ass Keep counting your cash, you're counting on that And what's up behind when you're moving too fast You never know how you're moving too slow It's not what you know, it's who do you know And what do you earn, and who did you burn To get where you are, now keep your star As long as you know the stars come and they go The hands that you're shaking All the deals that you make Your smile that you're faking Like a stepping stone I hope that you know They come and they go Yes, they come and they go yes, they... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.